0: Short on time? We've got you covered. Welcome to the 5-Minute Torah, where you can digest big thoughts on the weekly Torah portion in about 5 minutes. If you enjoy this teaching, please share it with your family and friends. So, um, with Rabbi being out, um, I decided I was going to throw in some of my stuff that he wouldn't necessarily talk about. I mean, you know, he doesn't talk much about Star Trek. I don't know why. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> we're going to get there, but let me just start out with this. You know, we've been talking about the biblical festivals, right? Rabbi's been doing a series on the biblical festivals, and it's been wonderful. But for some reason, he hasn't mentioned this one coming up. He hasn't mentioned this thing called Hanukkah. Okay? <clears throat> so, the question we need to figure out is one, is Hanukkah biblical? And if. If so, where, why have we mentioned it? And if it's not, why are we doing it, right? And and the second question probably is, why should we, as followers of Yeshua, want to participate in Hanukkah? And better yet, which leads us to our topic at hand, what do Hanukkah and Star Trek have in common? Okay? So if you if have watched Star Trek at any length. And I know Dr. David's going to geek out, but, you know, just put, put him to the side. And he and I will we'll go after service. We'll, you know, we'll dialogue. But, um, <clears throat> you know, if you've heard it, if you've watched uh, a few episodes of Star Trek, you've, you've heard the phrase most likely, resistance is futile. Have you heard that? Resistance is futile. Okay. And who says that? The Borg. Okay. What is the Borg? Okay. It's a conglomerate cyborg species that's bent on universal conquest, okay? There's, the, there's these people. Or actually, I don't know if people is the right word, okay? But they, they are cyborg. They're half machine, half uh, humanoid. We'll just put it that way, okay? Star Trek universe, you can't just say human. <clears throat> and, so, um, and they are a conglomeration. They're mixed between these, these two and so you have these weird looking figures and all that kind of stuff, weird creature looking, they're cyborgs, and um, they their goal for their existence is to go out, find other civilizations, other races in, in the universe, and then basically subjugate them and make them in their own image, right? Assimilate, that's the word, okay? Their job is to assimilate assimilate entire planets, okay? That's what the Borg is. <clears throat> and little did um um I just went blank, the guy who wrote Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry, little did Gene Roddenberry know when he wrote about the Borg that he was going to be talking giving a metaphor for Hanukkah. Okay? And so let's let's work this in here. Um As the species, as a species as a whole, the Borg, they loathe individualism. They don't like individual identity. Let's put it that way. As a matter of fact, they refer to them as the collective and don't refer to any individual members by names. And by the way, I'm really sorry. I apologize in advance. I think only seven of nine people watching this are probably going to understand of it. The Trekkies got that. Um, they give each Borg its own designation instead of a name, so it's it's a number within a collective, okay? And so hence the seven of nine reference a while ago. <clears throat> it's the name of, of one of the the characters. And um, they don't even allow individual thought. okay They've got this brain implant in which that, that makes them where they actually hear the others in what's called the hive. And so they have this hive mentality, hive mind, okay? And um, so their thoughts, anything that they're thinking, the others can sense and the others can pick up on, the others can hear. Anything that they think about, whatever, see, interact with, and so forth, sensor- sensory you know, input and all that kind of stuff, <clears throat> the others feel, hear, and experience as well. Okay? So they have this this total disdain for individuality. They look like the people who are assimilated, they look like Borg, they act like Borg, they dress like Borg, and even think like the Borg from that point forward. And assimilation to being a Borg is virtually impossible to reverse engineer. Basically once you become a Borg, there's pretty much no going back unless you're Card. <clears throat> Resistance for most is indeed futile. Okay. So why why all the talk about this? What does any of this have to do with, with Hanukkah? What does this have to do with Torah? What does it have to do with Yeshua? Okay. <clears throat> this is, like I said, could be very well an allegory for the Hanukkah story. Because, as we will talk about more in just a second. This is exactly what the antagonist of the Hanukkah story wanted to create. He wanted to create a world in which people did not have their individuality. They all would be like him and his people, the Seleucid Greeks, okay They would worship the same gods, they would eat the same foods they would you know um, celebrate in the same way they they all this kind of stuff, and so this is the problem that came up. And, and when God established the nation of Israel, that wasn't his plan for his people. His plan was not for them to be like everyone else. His plan was for them to be what's called holy, to be unique, to be special, to be set apart. And so if you'd like to um, look up some time, I'm going to give you some brief um, um, references that you can go back and look look up at your own leisure. But pretty much the story of Hanukkah is foretold in the prophecies by Daniel. In Daniel 2, we read of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and this is a snippet from uh, verse 32 and 33. It says, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle And thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, you guys are probably familiar with this image, right? Probably learned about it growing up. And these parts of this image represent world powers that would be following on the heels of the Babylonian Empire. So the head of gold was the Babylonian Empire itself. The arms and chest of of silver was the Medio. Persian Empire, and the thighs of bronze were the Greek, was the Greek Empire, and the legs of iron and feet of clay became the Roman Empire. So you can see that progression as time goes on there. And Daniel 11 foretells the entire events from before Alexander the Great until the time of the Maccabees. Okay? Daniel 8, it sets the stage for the awful events that would t- one day take place during the time of the Maccabees. Like I said, I don't have time to go into all this detail, but you can read about these prophecies in the book of Daniel. Then compare them. Go find a, a copy of 1 Maccabees. I've got it actually in my book here. It's, it's um, printed in the back. Read 1 Maccabees, and you, you can just see these things lining up, okay? Um, here's a, a brief history. In 168 BCE, Antiochus IV, who Designated, who called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means basically God incarnate. Um, he came onto the stage in a way that affected Israel in a very challenging way. Now, he was crazy. He was a madman. And so, therefore, um, people gave him the epithet of Antiochus Epiphanes, okay, which means lunatic or madman. Um, So play on words there. He, he wasn't the god he thought he was. He was the lunatic, right? <clears throat> and so he was returning from his failed campaign in Egypt. He went down to Egypt and said, hey, you guys, we're going to kick your tails and you're going to join us and we're going to dominate your land and all that kind of stuff. And he got slapped on the wrist by some higher ups and was told to withdraw his troops. And so he had to come back. And when he did so, he was coming back through uh, the, the land of Canaan, there, the land of Israel, as it is. Uh, and uh, there was a Jewish revolt happening, and um, he was already in a foul mood from having to stop what he was doing and get slapped on the wrist. And so when he came through, he, that just gave him an excuse to sack Jerusalem. And so he, he brutalized the people, he destroyed A bunch of stuff. He slaughtered 40,000 people and put another 40,000 into slavery, sold them into slavery. This is the kind of guy he is. Nice guy. You want to have a party, right? So they thought they were done. They thought this is over. You know, this guy is out of our hair. Um, We're okay. But two years later, he came back and said, oh, you know, there was a problem. You know, let's let's make peace. Let's let's make smooth everything over. And he came with under the pretenses of peace. But then they opened their gates again and he ransacked it again. This time, however, he proclaimed that Judaism would not be tolerated on any level. Judaism within Israel would not be tolerated on any level. On uh, the 15th of Kislev, an idol was set up in the temple. Bless you, sir. Pardon me. And on the twenty fifth, twenty fifth of Kislev, the altar was defiled with idolatrous sacrifices and the pouring out of pig's blood all over the altar. Then he decided he was going to burn the Torah scrolls, and then he specifically forbade circumcision. He forbade Sabbath observance, and he forbade any kind of kosher um, eating. Okay, And the problem was, this came right on the heels of a wave of Hellenism that had come across Israel in the recent years at that time. So if you're familiar with Hellenism, you see the problem. If you're not, let me just explain that real quick. <clears throat> Hellenism takes its name from, of course, Helen, Queen Helen. It's the... It's the um, promulgation of Greek culture. And this is where um, the Greeks began influencing societies and civilizations and everything. And so people wanted to become more like the Greeks. The Greeks were the cool kids. And so they wanted to dress like them, act like them, party like them, and so forth. And so there were a lot, unfortunately, in Israel that adopted Greek culture. They even went so far as to take Greek names and so forth. I mean, even we had a, a high priest, or at least one high priest. I'm sure, probably more that used their Greek name, okay? Because they were so indoctrinated by Greek culture, that was the thing to do. <clears throat> and so, um, this was at a time when when Antiochus came and did all this stuff. It was at the per- basically the perfect storm where the people of Israel there was a, um, a, a clash between the cultures. We had part of Israel wanting to throw him out, kick him out, overturn him, preserve the ways of Hashem. <clears throat> we had another half that was like, hey, let's just do this. Let's get it over with. Let's, this is good anyway. Let's, let's just do what they want to do, become like them. Everybody's going to be okay, right? Let's assimilate. So I would imagine, well, let me, let me say this real quick. So Antiochus sent officers into towns across the nation to set up idols and have prominent and influential men of the town offer sacrifices and eat the pork chops on the altar in front of everyone. Okay? Imagine the conversation going something like this. Are you some kind of weirdo? Did God really say? It's not a big deal. It's just a piece of meat, a really tasty piece of meat at that. It's not, all, it's not about all this legalism. Just try it. You'll like it. Or, hey, you don't have to literally keep those ritual commandments. Just keep them in your heart. Or, why do you want to be so weird? Why do you want to be so different than everybody else? Stick out like a sore thumb. You, you're always saying you can't do this and you can't do that. You're such a party pooper. Or, come on over to my house this Saturday. We're going to have some ba- uh, baby back ribs. Why don't you uh, pick up some coleslaw on the way? Okay? Just my little attempt at humor there. And so what happened after that is finally somebody stood up to this. Finally somebody got fed up with it. Finally somebody had a backbone uh, and stood up to the problem that was happening. An older gentleman who was a Kohen, a priest, he was part of the Hasmonean family line, he was um, the priest in a town called Modin. You may have, you may have heard his name, Mattathias, or Mattyahu, or Matthew, or, more famously, MattisYahu. Now, he sings some really good stuff, but, um, you know, he's, he's been around a long time. Nobody's getting my jokes. <laughs> MattisYahu. Okay. We'll have to uh, culture you guys some music. I was culturing my young adults last night on the way. Sabrina and I were culturing them in the car, some old school Christian rock. So, so Mattis Yahu, he decided that he wasn't going to stand for this anymore. So what did he do? Uh, they were just about to have this, this person who had volunteered to come sacrifice on this makeshift altar and then eat the pig's flesh right in front of everybody. And Mattashahu, he says, no, we're not going to have this. And he, he said, basically, he ran first, drew his sword, he slayed his fellow Jew, and then slayed the uh, officers that were attending the, the, the event. And then he said, all who are for God and the Torah, follow me. And they ran and they hid out in the mountains. And they began to establish this guerrilla warfare against this mighty army, okay? Him and his five sons. Now, his five sons, I don't even know the rest of their names. So I could look them up, but you probably know this particular one, uh, that his name is Judah M.C. Hammer, right? No, his name is Judah Maccabee. Maccabee means the hammer. I don't know if you realize that. Maccabee means the hammer and he was nicknamed that because he ca- became a great military leader after his father died, <clears throat> and he would run in, and he would hammer the enemy, and he would run out. <clears throat> and he led this small band of guerrilla uh, soldiers, guerrilla warfare, against these guys. You may even call them sort of almost terrorists, but they were defending themselves in their own land. But um, they became... Um, So well trained in what they did that they could defeat ten times their number, you know, just a small group of the people. And the beauty of what they were doing and how they were doing it is because they would call on heaven for their strength. At the beginning of every battle, before the battle started, Judah Maccabee would call to heaven. He would gather everyone up and have a prayer of dedication that this battle belongs to the Lord. And that if it's your will that these pagans be thrust out of the land and your Torah be restored and your temple be restored, then let us succeed. Pardon me. So Judah leads his men and they finally gain control again over the temple mount, and they begin repairing and cleaning the temple, including completely removing the defiled altar and replacing it with a, a totally new one made of unhewn stones. Okay, And then, once this was complete, they rededicated this altar, and they rededicated it exactly one year from the time it was defiled. And this re- rededication we now know as Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, pardon me, because the word Hanukkah means dedication, and so what they were doing was dedicating this new altar and this new temple for the renewed service of the Almighty in Israel. And as the story goes, they only uh, they were going to uh, light the menorah, and they only had uh, one cruise of oil with the high priest. Um, uh signet on it with with the seal and that would only last one day and so they decided hey it's better to start something than not start at all it's better to do something than not do something so we're going to use it and if it lasts one day it lasts one day if it lasts more than that we'll be blessed right so they used the cruise of oil lit it and miraculously it lasted not just one day not just two days not just three days But it lasted all eight days of the dedication, festivities, and ceremony, okay? Why eight days? Seven is the number of completion, right? And we have seven days of the week and so forth. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And this was a new beginning for um, the Holy Temple and all that it entailed. And so because of these events, we remember them in in a number of ways during the eight nights of Hanukkah. We light candles. We recite blessings every night. We include the Al-Hanesim prayer uh, in our daily prayers and in our after meals prayers. Okay, This is for the miracle. That's what it means. Al-Hanesim means for the miracles. And then we recite the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 every day during our prayers of Hanukkah. Um, and we do not fast or eulogize during Hanukkah. That was a, a sort of a new one that I had not really paid attention to in the past. But we don't do this because this is a time of festivity. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of being um, thankful for what Hashem has done. I, I came across a few years back this uh, letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe um, to his, um, his followers. And I pulled this one piece because I thought it was so good that it would help us to get a focus on our responsibility of what we're doing, okay, when we, when we celebrate Hanukkah and so forth. He says this, The Hanukkah lights remind us in a most obvious way that illumination begins at home, within ourself and one's family. By increasing and intensifying the light of the Torah and the mitzvot, the commandments, in the everyday experience. Even as the Hanukkah candles are kindled in growing numbers from day to day. So if you're not familiar, the Hanukkah candles, there's you know, a total of eight plus the shamash, the, the servant candle. And instead of starting with eight candles and diminishing them through the eight days, we actually increase the light each of the nights. We start with one and then two and then three and build up. We have a full blazing Hanukkah menorah, Hanukkah. But though it begins at home, it does not stop there. Such is the nature of light, that when one kindles a light for one's own benefit, it benefits also all who are in the vicinity. that ring any bells? that sound like something somebody else may have said similar? You are the light of the world, right? You put your candle, your menorah on a stand. Indeed, the Hanukkah lights are expressly meant to illuminate the outside, symbolically alluding to the duty to bring light also to those who are, for one reason or another, still walk in darkness. <clears throat> so you guys know my wife. Most of you guys know Sabrina. And she loves Hanukkah. She told me, she tells me every year because it's her yearly inoculation against assimila- assimilation. Okay, we have lots of talk about inoculations and and all that kind of stuff. But this is our inoculation against assimilation. Hanukkah is a shot in the arm. It's a cry for us to wake up and realize that we are the frog in the kettle, and the temperature is only rising. When we look around, we may not see it unless we have that jolt to wake us up because we're slumbering. When we light the Hanukkah, we're supposed to set them in the window for people to see from outside. And this is symbolic of what we should be doing with our lives as well. When we set ourselves in the window, nearest the incoming darkness, we accomplish two purposes. The first is we work to push aside the darkness with just a small bit of light that's coming from within each one of us. And as I alluded to earlier, Yeshua taught his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket and on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. And so in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good theology and your no, it. I quoted that wrong. Sorry. They may see your good works. Right. Because and give glory to your fathers in heaven. You know, there's a saying that says that we judge other people based on their actions, but we judge ourselves based on our intentions. Unfortunately, nobody can see our intentions, so they can only see our works. They can only see our actions, and that's why our actions are so important, because they reflect what's truly in our hearts and the origin of where that's coming from. And secondly, second purpose is we give hope to other lonely candles struggling to maintain their light as well. We give them the courage to face the darkness and resist assimilation with their own small light. One flickering candle in a window will not dispel the darkness. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize that or not, this you know, deep thought there, but but neither is it Uh, as susceptible to assimilation when it's surrounded by other flames. When we each set our light in the window, the darkness will be diminished by our own candles. They will bring light to all who see it. So back to my connection at the beginning here. The Borg have no power over us when we stick together. When we're together, we'll be able to stand tall and proud in the face of darkness that's rushing from us at every angle. We'll have no need to cower in pursuit of a life of holiness. This Hanukkah, my challenge to you is, place your Hanukkah in the window, light your candles, recite your blessings, and that remember you're shining your light, not just physically, but metaphorically and spiritually as well, on those around you, through your actions, your actions of physically lighting that candle, your actions of physically going over and helping your neighbor or doing this or that or whatever, those affect those, the people around you. Because there are those around you, and unfortunately I'm one of them sometime with my perspective that needs shifting, there are people around us that can only see darkness and assimilation at every turn. The Borg are real, in a m- manner of speaking. And by shining your light, you'll, know, you'll never know what an impact it will have on those struggling to see beyond the consuming darkness of winter's long night. We can only overcome the influences of this dark world by joining our light with others. And the good news is, that s- is something the enemy, the Borg, doesn't want us to know. Resistance really isn't futile when we work together. So, shine your light brightly. You never know if you'll be able to be the one to inspire a spiritual revolution against the Borg. Are you enjoying the Five Minute Torah podcast? Want to share these five minutes of Torah with others? Please help spread the word by liking, sharing, and reviewing this podcast. You can also grab the printed version of Volume 1 or Volume 2 from Amazon. Perfect as a gift or for your Shabbat table. 5-Minute Torah. We've got you covered.